to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right, grab your Bibles. Turn to 1 Corinthians. We're continuing in our series this morning. We're going to be in chapter 13. So chapter 13, we're actually going to start in chapter 12 with verse 31. That's where we left off last week, and we'll read all the way through chapter 13 together. The words will be on the screen, so for those of you that have your app, your Bible, or the screen, let's read out loud together. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, will prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Father, we're grateful. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its infallibility and its inerrancy and the way that it challenges, corrects, and rebukes us in righteousness. God, we pray that your word would do that today, particularly with this passage. It's a well-known passage. We've either heard it or read it many times. So I pray, God, that uh, you'd allow me to bring a, a fresh understanding of these words today, that we would align our hearts to uh, what the Bible says about love, and God, that you would draw us to yourself. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. 
So if you're with us for the first time, we are in, a midst, in the midst of a, a sermon series in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. This is a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started in the first century, probably mid-century. Uh, he started it, then left, and he's writing them a letter, uh, both encouraging them on the, the good things going on in their church, and he's providing uh, some challenge, uh, rebuke, really, as to things that they need to be corrected on. In this particular part of the, the book, he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he's correcting them and both giving guidance in terms of how spiritual gifts are to be used in the, in the local church. Over the last two weeks, we've talked a little bit about spiritual gifts, and we've said there are three types. The first are people gifts. These are the offices. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 11. He says, And he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so these are special people who are called and um, gifted of God to serve the wider body of Christ. And then Paul says something unique in verse 11. He says in verse 12, actually verse 12, he says uh, that this, this fivefold office is used to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. And so firstly, the, God gives people as gifts to the church people gifts, that the greater body of Christ would be edified and would be built up, that, he, that they, these people would equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What he's saying in that is not everybody is going to be this type of gift, this office, this, this fivefold ministry. But my take on that a couple of weeks ago was, was simply this, we're all gifts. So anytime a spiritual gift operates in the, the life of the church, it's coming through a person, in a sense, all people are gifts. And that's why the next category of gifts are skill, skill gifts. You can find the, the, the skill gifts in Romans chapter 12. You see it in the end of Ro, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We see it in 1 Peter 4. We also see it uh, uh, in Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 11. Skill gifts are helps and administration and leadership and teaching and mercy and giving and, and serving, etc. Paul is not giving us an exhaustive list of gifts. Okay? He's just naming some as they're operating in the churches that he's writing to. So the thought is, because God has given you as a gift, we're all, in a sense, people gifts. He's also given you a skill that, by his Spirit, he empowers you with supernatural abilities as you're exercising it. And so it's not just that you just have a natural propensity to, to lead or to, to serve. Okay, you, you may have that in you, but... When you become a Christian, God, like, he supersizes it, like a, like a McDonald's fry, right? Like, he, he gives you a little extra, a little uh, behind those things that you naturally might able, be able to do. So people give skill gifts, and then there's manifestation gifts. And we looked at those two weeks ago. Nick talked about, a little bit about them last week. Uh, everybody is not going to have a manifestation gift. These are occasional, and they're circumstantial. We see them listed at the end of uh, close to the end of chapter 12, verses 4 through 10. It's the word, word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. It's faith, gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. So here's where we ended last week. That's Nick was preaching. We ended on verse 12, verse 31. Paul says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. So it's not wrong to want, desire, ask God for, pray for a spiritual gift. It's not wrong for you to, uh, to be around people who have a certain gift and to want to operate 
in that gift. But Paul is telling us that we should earnestly desire not just any gift, but the higher gifts. There's a lot of argument as to what he means by higher gifts. He's going to explain that when we get to chapter 14 next week, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the answer. Paul tells us to, to aspire to gifts that are intelligible. So in chapter 14, he's going to say, all right, so prophecy is better because when a person prophesies, we can understand it as, to oppose, as, as opposed to speaking in tongues. But the most important thing in regards to gifts that are higher are gifts that edify the body. That's what a spiritual gift is for, to edify the, the church at large. And so what Paul, Paul does in chapter 13 is he's, he's kind of pausing in, in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts. And he says, all right, so it's not wrong to really, really, really want spiritual gifts, but l- let me show you a higher, let me show you something that's, that's like off the scale better. Let me show you a more excellent way. And so Paul is basically telling the Corinthians, you know what, I'm not impressed with the gifts that you have or how they're even expressed in your midst. I don't want you to express them wrongly, but I'm not impressed by that. What's the, mo- what's the, the, the most important thing is the way of love. And it's going to articulate for us what the way of love is in Scripture. What is love? All right. I mean, think about all the songs that have been written just with that, that title right there. If you ask any number of random people to define love for you, you're going to get any number of, of random responses. Some will say love is affection. Some are going to say love is emotion. Many will say love is a feeling. And honestly, when I'm sitting down with a marital couple and I'm sort of unpacking what love is for them as they're getting ready to, to wed to each other, I get all these answers and I agree with them. Love is all those things and it's, and it's much more. It's, it's things that we can't even describe, okay? Love is just, it's all those things combined. Here's what Paul is doing in our text. He's not, he's not describing love as an emotion or a feeling or even affection. He's describing it as a way of living. Have you ever noticed how our culture trivializes love? Some of you might say, I love chocolate. Can I hear an amen? I, I don't love chocolate. I love ice cream. Right? As if chocolate or ice, I mean, as if love could be reduced to a delectable pleasure like chocolate or ice cream. It can't. The truth is, you don't love chocolate. I don't love ice cream. I mean, we say that, you know, in, in our vernacular, but we really don't. We, we enjoy it. Okay, I, I, some of you are saying, like, you just don't know how much I love chocolate. Like, like, I really get into it. I do. I love ice cream that much. There's always two flavors of ice cream in, our free, in my freezer. To my wife's displeasure. But here's the thing. You don't, you don't love chocolate. You enjoy it. You consume chocolate, and when you do, it brings you pleasure. You don't love it at least not in the way that Paul's describing love. Paul's going to say, it's not just a feeling or a pleasure. Love is a way of living. So that brings us to our text. You know, this is one of the most common passages in all the Bible. Most of you have uh, read this, heard it, um, recited it, memorized it. If not any of those, you've, you've heard about it, preached at a, a wedding homily. The thing to note, though, as we begin to unpack this text is is who Paul is writing to and the context, because the context uh, serves us well in regards to how Paul is talking about love. This is the church at Corinth, and 
The church at Corinth is a, is a church that has many good things going on in it, but they're also a messed up church, right? They're, they're a church that, have, that they were walking in rebellion and disobedience in many aspects of their Christian lives. And so Paul is like at the apex of his letter to this church. He's going to center on the topic of love. And he's going to talk about it in such that it's not this fluffy, feel-good kind of, kind of passage. He's going to talk about love in terms of, re- of a rebuke. In other words, their lives aren't aligned with the love that God displays in the Bible towards us and that we are likewise to display towards each other. So that's the direction that we're going to. The first thing that Paul does is he invites us to imagine a world that's completely without love. Can you, can you think of that? I mean, have you seen that yet? We're getting there. He, he invites us to imagine a world that's without love. Imagine you live in a world where whatever you say, whatever you know, and whatever you do is devoid of love. And he starts out by saying, if you lived in that world, that would be a world of nothing, of, of nothingness. It would be noisy, worthless, ultimately, and there'd be nothing to gain out of it. Look at verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. There's a debate as to what Paul is talking about when he talks about, uh, when he says tongues of angels. Some would, so is he, is he saying that when I speak in tongues that I'm actually speaking um, earthly languages like they did in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Or when I'm speaking in tongues, Am I speaking a heavenly language that's me communicating with God, the, the language of the angels? All right, I'm going to leave you hanging on that, and we're going to talk about that next week. Chapter 14, where we get to prophecy and, and tongues. Because Paul, that's not, I mean, Paul is just bringing that up in passing, right? His, his overarching thing that he's talking about here, the overarching idea is that the Corinthians were obsessed with impressive speech. They were all about rhetoric and who spoke the best. Add to that their intrigued that God would actually give them a spiritual gift that allowed them to speak in supernatural languages. And Paul is challenging that. He's saying, hey, guys, speak all you want, even in different languages, even the language of heaven. But I'm unimpressed with that, because if what you say isn't undergirded with love, then it's really just like loud white noise. I can't stand white noise. White noise actually keeps me up. It doesn't help me go to sleep. Because if you don't have love, you're just as empty as the noise of a gong or, or a cymbal. In other words, if I would go back there and like Seth this morning, I would just like bang on the cymbal and then try and talk at the same time, it, it would be almost unintelligible, right? You wouldn't be able to hear me over the clanging noise of the symbol, and Paul is saying that same thing. You might have good things to say. You might even have an impressive gift, but if in accord with that gift, all I'm hearing is the symbol banging, then uh, very rarely am I going to understand what you're saying, and more than that, your, your good words are going to be covered up in just the noise. And here's the bad news. This doesn't just apply to the first century church. This applies to us too, the church of our day. I think the dominant message, if we would ask just a random person on the street who doesn't go to church about what, I mean, what's the message that you hear coming out of the church today? I don't know if they would, if the first words off their lips would be, well, I, I think you guys are about love. I think they might say that we're about condemnation. I mean, we're pretty good at that. 
I think they might say that, well, church people are just resentment, just resent everybody else that aren't doing the exact same things that you're doing. A lot of times what comes out of the message of the church is, is hatred and bitterness, but overall it's division. I think in many ways the church of our day is as divided right now in our time as the, the politics of our nation is divided. And of course all that's based on pride and selfishness. Don't you know people who spout a lot of doctrine, they can articulate the gospel like eloquently, but they don't have like an ounce of love about how they do it? And here's the thing, when we speak well about God, but don't have the love to back it up, the very message that we're proclaiming is undermined by the life that we're living. And so Paul would say, don't do that, because you, you put the church at, uh, at, at, at in Ill, Ill repute. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so firstly, Paul talked about uh, how the Corinthians were boasting in their knowledge and wisdom, but here he's saying they're also boasting in their gifting. So the, the prophetic words that they were receiving and the words of knowledge that the Spirit was granting them. So you have this group of people who are becoming increasingly impressed with themselves. And Paul is saying, come on, folks. If, if you think you know God, but you don't love people, you're just ignorant. In fact, the Apostle John would back this up. First John 4, Verse 20, he says, if you say that you know God who is love and yet fail to love your brother, then you don't actually know God like you think you do. Because if God is love and you know him, you're going to act like God acts. And you're going to love like he loves. Someone once said, we display what we relationally know God to be like by how we treat one another. So how we relationally know God, not cognitively, but experientially from our heart. I like how Paul Tripp says this. He says, we can only love and receive love horizontally to the degree that we have received it vertically. Those are beautiful words, but it makes me go ouch every time I think about it. Be because what's happening in our lives when we, when we, when we are enabled or lack the ability to receive or even give love to people around us, it means we're not getting it from God. We haven't, understand, we haven't understood his love for us, and therefore we aren't able to, to give it out. And, and that plagues all of us in the room. So Paul says, if you think you have greater knowledge and wisdom, and yet you don't have love, you don't, you don't have anything. There's, there's no room for boasting Corinthian church. Verse 3 if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. A more literal translation of this verse is, if I surrender my body that I, that I may boast. And of course, the idea is one of sacrifice and of charity. And so if I charitably give all that I have, or, or even give sacrificially of my body, there was this practice that the early church would, they would actually um, take their bodies and uh, submit themselves to so, uh, uh, a version of imprisonment or even worse, that they would do something bad to the body, like burn it on behalf of other people in the hopes that this would help another person somehow. Paul is saying, you can do all that stuff, but if you fail to do it out of love, it's basically a waste. Let me give you an example. Say we had a person in our church that was, was in a, a, a hard way financially. They, I mean, they were just uh, worse than impoverished. They, they just were in a tough spot. 
So we had another family that was affluent and that could uh, satisfy this person's need and then some. And so we announced that a person in our church has a need. Uh, this family comes and says, hey, well, I can meet the need, but, but, but check it out. Um, we want to meet the need. In fact, we want to give the person more than they need. But, but here's, here's our rule. Um, we, we're, we don't want to do this because we're nice. We just want the attention. Could you like put our? Could you like bring us up in the church and and put us on the stage and let us say a few words about the money that we're given? And, and would you put our name in the weekly update so everybody in the church knows that we just gave all this money? And uh, and and if you can let anybody else know that we're we've done this great thing, that would be cool. And so here's the thing: if you were the the person that was impoverished and you needed this money, would you take it? Like, like, what? Would you take it? Some of y'all are saying, like me, it's like, look, I don't need you to love me. Give me that money, right? Right. That's probably what I would do. But the Christian inside of me would say, you know what? If you can't be charitable with your giving, then, then, I mean, I'll, I'll find some help some other place. So that's what Paul's talking about here, And, and there are implications from this, this idea of sharing and sacrifice that we should watch out for ourselves, even in our own charity. So practically, like today, if you're giving and you're only giving for tax deduction, then, then don't give because that's, that's not love. If you're benevolent because it makes you feel better about yourself, that's not really love. Yeah, be benevolent, but God wants there to be love behind it. If I'm charitable because I feel guilty about something that I've already done, like had a, had a bad night, did a bad thing. Let's, let's say I've been extravagant with my money for no reason at all, bought a, bought a big house, bought a nice car, just wasting money left and right, and I feel guilty about it, so I want to assuage my guilt by, by doing something that may be kind to somebody else. That's, that's not really love. That's you trying to make up for your guilt. And oh, by the way, Jesus has already died for your guilt. So it's already taken care of. Here's what Paul's getting to in these first three verses. According to the Bible, love is everything. Everything. And without love, everything is nothing. Love is everything, and without love, everything is nothing. And so, let's all ask this of our relationships and our daily activities. Why am I doing what I do? And if you can say in your heart that you're doing what you do for love, because of love and in love, then, then you're on the right track. But if you're doing what you do, not because of love, for love, because of love and in love, then perhaps you're doing it for the wrong reason. And Paul would exhort us, let's not be lacking, but let's be full of love so that we can give out of the overflow and the abundance of the love that God gives us. Here's where Paul goes next. So if everything is nothing without love, then we need to consider what is love. And so Paul takes the time with the Corinthian church to identify no fewer than 15 characteristics of genuine Christian love. And he begins in verse 4 saying, love is patient. This is the song we just sang. Patience means uh, long-suffering. Author and pastor Sam Storms says the idea is more of endurance in the face of suffering. Paul has in mind patiently bearing with those who don't love you and choosing not to retaliate against them. This is when life is tough in regards to relationship that you have and uh, you're learning to guide to yourself in terms of 
uh, even having your basic needs met, you're turning off your pleasure so that you can love someone else who really is tough to love, and it's getting hard. Like, like you're getting weary of always giving and not receiving, of always giving and not getting anything from the, from the object of your, of your love. And here's the sad thing. You know, there's just so much in our culture today that trains us not to be patient. You know what the number one thing is? Isn't it? Like, we're, this thing every day trains us that, like, instant gratification. Whatever I want, I can, like, find out things all over the world. I can know mostly anything that goes on as soon as it happens. It's training us to be immediate and constant in terms of our having, uh, being gratified in all of our ways. I think uh, we live in D.C., right? Just like any big city. The commute that we have here is one of those things that's, that's uh, God's gift to you. Right? Right, right? It is. So you can sit in traffic and learn how to suffer. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, wasn't on the, I wasn't on the beltway. I wasn't on the interstate. I was coming from an appointment uh, only like a couple miles down the road. I was coming back to the, the church building, and uh, I wasn't in a hurry, Okay. But the car that was merging into traffic was, and this was, a, this was like a, a regular car, but it was a, a guy, you know, one of those, uh, what do you call it? It's a work vehicle, had all the signs and stuff on the outside of the car. He was probably going 50, over, over 50 in a 35. And because I wasn't in a rush, I'm going straight, he's merging in. I decided to slow up a little bit so that he can just go, up, go about his way, because obviously he was in a hurry. Uh, and so I come, I come, I come, and I'm like equal with him, and the guy just like flips me off, and I can tell he was like cussing me out, and I'm like thinking, I'm trying to be nice to you. I'm not in a hurry. I can tell you are, so go ahead on and, and get to wherever you're trying to get to go, because I don't want you to run into me. And the guy didn't even appreciate that. Perhaps that's you. And so that, that's what, that's, I didn't mean that personally. <laughs> Perhaps DC traffic is, is doing that to us, right? But, but here's my point. If, if, you, if we can't get that right in traffic, Lord, help us when it comes to relationships because relationships, patience is like downright hard, isn't it? It's hard. As you're living this out, I mean, how do, how do we do this? You know, most of us know someone that we desperately want God to change. And as we're, you're living it out, you're, you're thinking, man, why is it taking so long for this person to change? And then we forget, who's the change agent? Is it me and my wants and my suggestions or the way that I'm you know, prodding a person to do this or do that? Or is it God? And, and whose timetable is this? Is, is, it, is it mine because I'm impatient or is it God's who changes really slowly, systematically, as he sees fit. Do we love those around us because we just want them to change, or has that person become a project to you, or do you actually want the best for them because you see them as a brother and a sister? Love is patient. Love is also kind. This is referring to our speech, how we talk to one another, how we talk about one another. And there's no place like worse than that, like we do this and on social media, right? Like, not so much Instagram. Instagram is the place where we put our selfies on and we put our best face on Instagram. I mean, unless you read the comments. Comments can be like, no joke. 
But Facebook and Twitter are the place that we either uh, tweet our own uh, post or, or tweet our own ideas, or we just get downright dirty and mean. Have y'all checked Facebook lately? It's just ugly. And so we need this word. Why? Because love doesn't tear down, it builds up. Love speaks to one another in such a way that the people listening receive a benefit, a grace, a kind of encouragement. Here's a, here's a question I've been asking myself this week. What is it like to be on the other side of me? You ever ask yourself that? Like, don't if you don't want the Holy Spirit to work on you. Because that it, it's been rough. Like, what am I like from the moment I wake up to the time I go to bed, when I'm challenged, when you ask me a question, when you interrupt me, when I'm, like, when I'm frustrated? What is it like to be on the other side of me? That's a really good question to ask someone who's really close to you and be prepared for the answer to, to surprise you. And, and before you respond, just like, wait, Holy Spirit, help me because I want to say what I want to say, but perhaps this person is right. So I'm not a, I don't, um, I don't say everything I think, but I do have a problem with words coming out of my mouth before I think about them. Many years ago, my wife and I were doing a marriage Bible study, and we did this, uh, it was an inventory of uh, like trust or whatever, and the question was, do you edit your words before you say them? And my wife went first, and she said, of course I do, because if I said everything to you that I'm thinking, it would be hurtful. And I looked at her, and she's like, I, I never edit my words. And she's like, <laughs> she's like I know. Yeah. So I need, I need to grow here. Love is kind. Love does not envy, Paul goes next. And here's where Paul begins to direct, uh, speak directly into what the Corinthians were at fault for doing. So, so this is a jealous congregation. They're looking across the worship uh, gathering and saying, wow, that, that, was a per- that's what, that was a better prophetic word than I gave last week. And, and they're looking over here saying, oh, oh man, you, uh, you seem to be able to interpret all the, the, the messages and tongues that comes in our congregation. And so they're, they're jealous over one another. And they say, well, why, do you, why is it every time that you pray for someone, they get healed? I want that gift too. And they're, they're jealous and envious of other people's gifts. And so they were trying to impress each other with their speech. And now they're one-upping each other in their conversation. And you've experienced this. This is when you're with your buddies and, uh, and, you, and you're just talking. And like every, every sentence is embellished to some like l- lunacy. Right, right? Like, yeah, I played tennis when I was young. And uh, oh, yeah, I, I won a few tournaments. I, I was ranking the state. I, I played a couple years at West Point until my grades started dropping, and like, I was going to get dropped out. Right, right. And the next person says, well, I mean, well, I played in college all four years, and I was All-American. I was uh, semi-pro. And the third guy says, well, I got a gold medal in the Olympics playing doubles. And the fourth guy says, well, I played tennis on the moon. Like, like right? This is, this is the kind of thing that we do. But here's the thing that happens when we're when we're doing that, whenever we're walking in envious ways, we are at the same time tearing down others when we should actually be building them up. We end up disparaging what God is doing in another person so that they can, so we can get the credit and we take it from them. And that's damaging, isn't it? Usually when we say these words, I wish that I had that person's gift or ability. What we're actually saying is, you know what, I don't think you should. I, I, I want your gift. Why, God, why don't you give me their gift and like give them something else, something lesser? That's not love. Love does not boast. 
In boasting, we're trying to put ourselves above others. We're trying to showboat, to take the stage or steal the attention. Scottish theologian William Barclay says, true love will always be far more impressed with its own unworthiness than its own merit. You know, in a sense, we don't deserve any of God's graces. That was the song that we sang today, uh, Reckless Love. Oh, the overflowing ever, I can't remember the words of the song. If we were singing, I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't deserve his, we don't deserve the love that God has, has given us. And so the, the, the boast isn't about what we do for God, but what, about the love that God gives to us. The real truth behind those words is, why me? Why did you call me? Why did you die for me? Why have you forgiven me? Why did you pour out your spirit on my life? I don't deserve this. And I think the more that we sit in, in that place, the more that our affection grows for God, the more we recognize how great God's grace really is. And our hearts are going to well up with affection for God. As a result, we're going to have not just a vertical affection for God, but we're going to have affection for those who are horizontally connected to us. Love does not boast. It's also not arrogant. Earlier, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So the arrogant person feels like they don't have anything else to learn. They don't need to hear from or learn from others. And of course, this can be destructive, particularly in our relationships. The word arrogant comes from the verb to arrogate. It means to, to lay claim on something. This is the idea of, of self-entitlement. In other words, it's me thinking I deserve more than I've actually been given. And so when I live this way, it's destructive to my relationships because I'm consuming and taking rather than really, really willingly giving of myself to other people. Verse five, love is not rude. This literally means it's not shameful or unpresentable. The context goes to, to really everything Paul has said about the Corinthian church up to this point. Uh, back in chapter five, Paul challenges the Corinthian church about a man who is in sexual immorality. He's sleeping with his father's wife and the church wouldn't confront it and basically had affirmed what he's doing in the midst of the, the congregation. Paul tells him, this is not love. It's also what Paul says in chapter 11, when he says that the women were shaming the, their husbands in public worship by not, uh, by not uh, abiding by the authority figures in, in the church. They were wearing head coverings. They were not wearing head coverings, rather. It's also what was going on in the Agape Feast in chapter 11. What was going on there? The, the affluent were shaming the poor by uh, getting drunk, by eating all the food before the poor could even get there. So Paul wants them to know that love doesn't shame one another. It doesn't look down on other people, and it surely doesn't shame God by rejecting his word. I think we live in a, a context today where rudeness is the norm. It's in the newspapers. It's on the news. It's on the TV. It's on social media. It comes out of our mouth. Public shame is accepted and practiced in ways that, I mean, we don't even blush about it now. It's just the norm of our society. And we need to realize that's not love. Next, Paul says, love doesn't insist on its own way. In our culture, love is letting me do whatever I wanna do. And Paul says, that's not love. Love doesn't insist that I get my own way. Love is God having his way for the good of others. You know, one of the things that we talked about, prayed about when we came to this space here was, would it help or hinder our congregation? 
And the concern was, this is six miles away. We come from the, the, the county of Alexandria, right there in Kingstown, to like right here, we're in the city of Alexandria, and we were concerned that would our folks be able to, to make the jump? Because at, at that time, four months ago, we were really located centrally, if you put a concentric circle around all our people coming to church around the Kingstown area. So we were worried about losing people. To be honest, we did lose a couple families that just like six miles away uh, was a little bit too far. Uh, namely, we lost Dick and Bonnie, who I, I mean, I miss to this day. It was just a little bit too much for them to, to come this way. Um, but as we thought about it, prayed about it, uh, strategized about it, I mean, God responded and he was favorable to us, favorable in our connections with MISPA, and, uh, and we're grateful for it. And so we're praying uh, even the more, Lord, uh, how can we be, uh, how can this be not about us and more about you? On Wednesdays, we're uh, prayer walking. Uh, so far, it's been Nick and I, like hanging out on the street, like literally, we're prayer walking. We leave here at 12. And we go left or right, and we're praying for the businesses that are east to our east. We're praying for these homes, walking around sort of the neighborhood, praying that um, God would bless these people, that his glory would shine in this area, that we, would, that, that we would know why we're here and that we would have a part in these people's lives. Um, I've been praying this uh, to myself for a, a few months here. Lord, like there's a lot of people that are here on a typical day. Like there's a, the Social Security Administration's here. There's a, a, an organization at the, at the front of the building that works with uh, people with disabilities. There's some secret squirrel stuff going on here. There's some educational stuff going on here. There, there really is secret squirrels like right over there. Like they don't want us to know who they are, but I do, right? <laughs> That's what most of y'all do. And, and I've been praying, all right, Lord, so how can, we, how can we minister to the people that are here on a daily basis? And last week, Monday, a dude walks in. It's like, what are y'all? And I said, well, we're a church. He said, oh, there was a church that used to be here. I said, no, we're not that church. We're a different church. He says, well, can I come in here and pray? And I was like, I would love for you to come here and pray. The guy's name is Lucky. Three days this week. He came in at noon, and he's in here. He's like clapping his hands. He's like singing his own songs and, and praying like out loud in this room. And I don't mind that at all. And I, I pray that the Lord would have his way uh, so that I don't know. I just want, I want God's way to be the way that our church goes. Not Jeff's way, not Nick's way, not your way. Um, and I think that he's brought us here just for that. Amen? Amen. It's his church. We should say yes to that. Love is not irritable or resentful. The NIV, I like the NIV translation. It says, uh, not easily angered and keeps no record of wrong. So let me, let me ask you, are you easily offended? Are, are you? Do you generally show up and go, yeah, I'm pretty mad at the world right now, and it's going to be this way for a long time. I'm disappointed. I don't like you. I don't like that. I, you know, those kind of things. And I'm not saying it's, it's not wrong to be scrutinizing. We need to probably be more scrutinizing in our culture than we currently are. But if that's what you lead with all the time, then that's a problem. The bigger problem is that if you're always walking around angry, disappointed, irritable, resentful, it's like other people are walking on eggshells just trying to deal with you. Like, who are you going to be today? And unfortunately, no one gets to love a person like that because you're too brittle, you're too hard to let anybody close. Love is not easily angered. It's not always ready to blow up, and it's ready to embrace. Paul then says, and it keeps 
no record of wrongs. I think one of the beautiful things that we learn about the gospel, about the kingdom of God, is that Jesus pays for our sins and he doesn't hold it over our heads any longer. Jesus doesn't show up and say, yeah, I saved you. Remember that day that you did dot, dot, dot? He doesn't do that. That's not how it works with Jesus. The Bible says he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he doesn't hold our sins against us any longer because he paid for them on the cross and he put them to death. And if Jesus does this for us, how much more should we do it for others? Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Notice that Paul doesn't say rejoices with good because it's not doing good that helps us. I'm not saying you shouldn't do good. Particularly, Scripture says, do good to those who are of the household of faith. I'm not negating Scripture here. What he is getting at is, it's not good that helps you, it's knowing the truth. Why? Because the truth sets you free. We won't keep walking in wrongdoing if we know the truth. I think we live in a context that says, you don't have to receive and submit to the truth of God's word anymore because it's not loving to. You know, we live in a culture like that. It's not loving for you to point out those things that are going on in other people. But what we get at if we do that, and what this leads to, is we end up not calling sin, sin. But here's the truth. We're not PC, we're KC. That's true about all of you. We're not supposed to be so politically correct that we're not kingdom correct. You're kingdom people. And so Paul's exhortation is, rejoice in the truth. Don't be ashamed of God's word. When we hold firm that God's word is our truth and whatever God says is right is right, whatever God says is wrong is wrong, that's the most loving thing that we can do. I didn't hear any amens. So, I mean, so how are you doing with love, Transit Church? How, how are we doing? Some of you are saying, I'd be doing better if you stopped talking about love. I'm almost done. Here's the thing. Whether you're a Christian or not, everybody wants this love. One commentator says, you know, our best days, we long to give this love. And on our worst days, we long to receive it. I think we all want to give it, even sometimes in our incapacity to give it. But we definitely all want to receive it. And so Christian or not, God has made you for this. God has made you for love, by love, and because of his love. And he wants you to live sustained by love. But the truth is, none of us can live this out without help. We need help. In fact, you can't even manufacture this kind of love. You can't work hard enough to accomplish it. You can't try harder to get it. Stephen Ohm, pastor and commentator, says, if love is to be love, if it's to be what we come to know it to be in all of our mystery and magic, if love is to be the love that we desire, crave, and long for, then it will necessarily have to come from outside of us. And this is why Paul suggests that love is categorically different and permanently significant. Love happens outside of us. Love happens to us. Love is not words that we say, it's not feelings we feel, it's not even deeds that we do. It's something far bigger than all of that. And only this kind of love can redefine our lives. Where does a love like this come from? Paul is telling us it comes from God. Verse 7, God's love bears all things, believes all things, even when you can hardly believe anything. It hopes all things, even when you feel like you're in despair. It endures all things, even when you want to give up. And why is that? He says it in verse 8. Because this love never ends. 
The, the literal, translation, like, literal translation of those words is, love never collapses. It's never going to fall apart on you. It's like you have it in your hands and it like, like falls through. Love isn't going to do that, at least not God's love. It can handle the weight of your burden. It can push in where you feel like you have nothing left. It can help you endure when you want to give up. It can help you have faith to believe when you feel like you've got nothing. You feel like that? That's what this love is that Paul's describing, and it's the love from God. It's not just the way of love. It's actually a person. It's Jesus. And we could literally go back to this passage and, and exchange the word love for Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy your boast. He doesn't, he's not arrogant or rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs over any of us. He's not easily angered. Jesus doesn't hold a record of wrongs over our head. What does he hold? He holds like adoption and sonship and the love of God and acceptance over our heads, forgiveness. Jesus doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things and endures all things. Jesus believes all things and hopes all things. And that's what he wants us to know through the Apostle Paul, through these words, that Jesus believes more for you than you believe for yourself, that he hopes more than most of us can even imagine, and that his plans for you and for your future are things that you could never dream of. And so if, if you ever wanted that love, if you ever needed that love, it's for you to ask for it. Particularly if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then this is a passage that beckons you to come and receive a love that you've never experienced, a love that's overwhelming. That's the love of God. Here's how Paul finishes. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, they'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This, it seems like Paul is finishing kind of negatively. This is actually really, really good news. And the good news is none of us have seen the full picture of what God is up to. Paul says, Jesus is coming. He's the perfect that will come. And so Jesus is coming. He's going to make all things new. He's going to take us from childish ways and he's going to make us more mature men. He's referring to things that are unloving. Spiritual maturity in the Bible is not you knowing more. It's you loving more. And then he says these beautiful words. He says, we're going to be fully known. And that's why in this text he says, I mean, we won't need prophecy because we're going to know all God wants us to know. We won't need speaking in tongues. Why? Because God is going to do this like a miracle in heaven that we're going to understand intuitively every language that's spoken from every tribe and nation and tongue is going to be absolutely amazing. You're not going to be, I mean, it's going to be like far beyond Pentecost. And then, if that's not all, we'll finally fully know Jesus which means we're going to fully know love. We'll be full and we'll be mature in love. Verse 13, and then we'll be done. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, but the greatest of these 
is love. Here's the thing that you and I will do forever, Transit Church. Love. We're going to love perfectly. We're going to love fully. What we'll experience forever is the deepest expression of love you and I could ever imagine and beyond. And so even in this life, you think you have both received and given love kind of well. You don't, I mean, you don't know what you're missing, but it's coming. It's the love of God. We'll be full, we'll be mature, and the love that we're going to experience in the future is going to be amazing. And so let's love like we expect this to happen one day. Amen? Amen. Lord, you are love, your life, and uh, we invite you with the love that only you can give to come into our hearts, our desperate hearts, and help us to receive and to give love this way. Lord, there's so many ways in regards to love that we fail. And that's why we sing songs reminding us of not our love and what we do for you, but uh, that we would boast in the love that you give us and what you've done for us. So, Lord, even now as we close in song, help us to bask in those words that, um, that honor you, the love of God. I pray particularly, Lord, for those here that are in a love deficit, either in a relationship or perhaps um, just in knowing who you are. God, would you open our hearts and minds to, to receive of you? And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.